computer. Yeah, you want me to change the laptop? You know, you might have better luck with that. I don't. I think that might be the problem. All right, hold on. Okay. All right, we go get it. Okay. Hi, it's Claire Berlinski, and I'm here with my father, David Berlinski, for a special Berlinski Family Cosmopolitan. And Pop, this is your first visit to the podcast, so we're just going to have a conversation. It's an informal conversation. I figured the way we have the conversations we have every day would be of, of great interest, although you can't offend all my readers. No, I'll just be prepared to respond stiffly as a board in monosyllables. Okay. All right. But, uh, you know. But before you do that, it says I have something I have to click. Either leave meeting or got it. Got it, I guess. Yeah. I don't think you have to click anything, though. It just came up on the screen. Okay. okay. So I thought we'd have the conversation or we'd have some version of the conversation that we have pretty much every morning, which is, why is the world so screwed up? Oh. Well, I, I think the first thing to acknowledge is, yes, the world is badly screwed up, and no, it's not either an hysterical overreaction or the vituperations of someone my age. I think objectively, and we could make the case during the hour we speak together, that Things have gone badly wrong in a number of respects. I think that's unmistakably true. And if someone says, no, you know, things are just fairly normal, a continuation of the post-war, post-Second World War, democratic situation in the West and vaguely authoritarian situation in the East, but essential continuity in the state of the world, I think we'd have to say he or she is just nuts. So I agree with you. That's the place to begin. The world is deformed in a number of ways that it hasn't been quite as deformed before. In retrospect, the period, say, from 1945 or maybe 1950 to 1970, 1980, really does appear politically, intellectually, and morally as a, almost a golden age in comparison with what has come afterwards. Certainly. I mean, there, it was the period of steady economic growth, enormous optimism. There were catastrophes during that period. Oh, sure, Vietnam. Vietnam, Cambodia, the Iranian East Revolution. Timor, Cambodia. No question about that. China especially is Eritrea. still unremarked catastrophe in world history. What happened under the Chinese Communists, the revolution from 1949 to at least 1980. I mean, we're talking about unspeakable death tolls, unspeakable yeah, yeah. horrors. But still, but still, there is a qualitative distinction between the experience one had of the world between 19, especially as Americans, 1950 and 19, say, 75, 80, and the experience one had thereafter as Americans or Western Europeans. It's just quite different. It is. And I think if I were looking for a single word that expresses it, it would be chaos. Anarchy or chaos. I think chaos is a good word, a suggestive word, but I think the real crisis is spread out over dozens of different institutions, intellectual, religious, moral, political, institutional, administrative, and it's always, to a certain extent, the same crisis, the inner collapse of confidence and authority. And to my mind, and considering the vast wisdom my age confers upon me, this is the most striking feature of the last 
30, 40 years. The, the, co- the internal collapse of systems of authority. That's exactly where I would locate, I'm not so surprisingly, but I, w- I would locate the source, the, the ultimate source of the instability coming from the United States, from some kind of rot that is hollowing out the United States and with it, the rest of the West, because the rest of the West goes wherever the United States does and involves a collapse in the competence of our institutions and the trust that we place in them. I'm not sure, considering the world is a dog and pony show, whether the dog is leading the pony or the pony is following the dog. I don't think analytically it makes a great deal of difference. Something is undergoing internal dissolution. And and we can speak globally throughout the world, but we can also speak historically. We can say, uh, we see a part of of the the situation. We see certain threads going back to the past. For example, the two hundred year decline in religion seems to be a part of it. The decline in belief in personal immortality, salvation of any kind, but also the decline in a commitment to a religious way of life, broadly conceived. Broadly conceived. That's certainly one part of it. The sterility of the grand project in the sciences, that's another part of it. It's unmistakable. It, it, it is not obvious to someone beyond the sciences, but the influences trickle down like multiple waterfalls. The collapse of science as the last remaining authoritative intellectual structure, of course, is another part of it. I mean, trust the science functions now as either a threat or a, or an invocation of encouragement. Neither of them in any way comparable to the role that the sciences played post-Second World War when they achieved great triumph of atomic energy. A marked difference in the diapason of life. It's obvious to everyone, even people who have no direct experiences of, say, theoretical physics or any of the other sciences. A relentless materialism within the moral economy of the West the cultivation of individualism. Those are all things we can sort of see. We can point the lean finger at them. But analytically, in terms of developing a comprehensive theory of what's going on, I think that's quite beyond anyone. Where do you think it starts? Where do you think this this collapse? Pardon? I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Where do you think it starts? You mean in the individual? No, no, in our culture. You've mentioned Kennedy's assassination as the as the transition point. Sure. That, that's a, that's an anecdotal piece of evidence. And I have no way, because I haven't done any research of, of uh, justifying my assumption that that was a, a critical turning point, a singularity in, in a certain kind of political, emotional, and moral manifold. It certainly seemed at the time to all of us living through it as adults, and I was an adult at the time of the Kennedy, uh, time of Kennedy's assassination, that something had, had changed as radically as sunset in the tropics. One minute was light, the next minute it was dark. And I've never lost that impression. And unfortunately, the assassination immediately became sunk into a writhing nest of competing snakes, all of them representing a conspiracy theory. And to this day, I don't think anyone really knows what happened on November 22nd, 1963. It was perfectly obvious the second after the assassination that this would not be an easy crime to understand or decipher. And so it is proven. And that has done nothing to change the fact that the crime itself and what it represented 
was really a singularity. This has only enhanced our sense of uncertainty, perplexity, and darkness. So yes, I think from my point of view, and I can justify this in terms of any kind of far-reaching historical analysis, I do, looking back on my own life, I, I do see that as one of the pivotal changes. Something was exposed on that day that should never have been exposed to the light of day. Something deeply sinister seemed to appear in American political life. It was there, obviously, it came out, but it was much better. Had it, had it remained well hidden, it would have been much better. Exposed? You mean the idea was introduced that it could have been an inside job injecting cynicism into the body politic? I mean, some people immediately reached that conclusion. I remember a lot of them from the 60s. Mark Lane, for example, a very bright, aggressive attorney. I knew him very briefly. But there were, there were dozens of others. Certainly, it enhanced a sense of cynicism. No, I don't think so. I don't think it was simply the ensuing sense of cynicism. I think it was a sense up until 1963 that America, for all the horrors of the Second World War and our participation in that, for all that in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and Korea, there was a kind of innocence to or indifference to what European realists would always have said is the much darker side of political life. The fact that to be in political life in one way or another is to accept an engagement with bloodshed. And that illusion or point of indifference just disappeared. Just Why did McKinley's assassination have this effect? I wasn't around, believe it or not. Uh, I, I just don't <laughs> know. I'm only, I'm only speaking from personal experience. I have to stress that. I haven't done any research. I've read a few books by people I know who were involved. But but beyond that, I can only offer the first cut at history is always one's own impression of the time through which one's lived. And those were my impressions. It does seem that from that point, you see a steady decline in critical institutions. The two that have been really on my mind are academia and journalism, where it seems as if the quality of both or the value that both add to society are diminishing by the day. And I can speak a bit about journalism, but I'd like to hear your thoughts about what has happened to academia. Yeah, it's it's a good it's a good yoking of two institutions, journalism and and, and the academic world. Both uh, essential to a liberal democracy. Both essential, I agree completely. Although I think journalism is perhaps more essential than the academic world. If every Ivy League institution was leveled to the ground tomorrow, and and the ensuing debris salted an hour thereafter, would the net loss to the world be as considerable as you might imagine? Well, at this point, no, it might even be a net gain, but that's no, not so normal. It, it's, it's not normal, but I'm not quite sure that the academic world, as it, has, as it exists and has existed in the United States since 19, oh, say 1940, 1950, when a great change came over, it became a democratic world rather than an elite world, uh, has been as significant in, in the terms that you are suggesting as it might otherwise have been. What I do think about the academic world is slightly more a matter of uh, reflection than it is personal experiences. Look, I was at Columbia in the late 1950s and early 60s, Princeton in the 60s, and Stanford 
in 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 the 60s so i had a pretty good view of three very very important institutions quite different quite different columbia was more or less modeled on a european institution maybe maybe not in theory but in practice during the 19 late 1940s and early 50s and even to the early 60s it was home to any number of very accomplished european scholars and that was reflected in the university itself located in the middle of new york city that princeton was was quite different it was a very isolated place the best students came from private public schools or private schools like well i forgot the names haverford or choet very very elite very was very male there were no women at princeton when i was there no and a student body that in some respects was better than the student body of Columbia. Columbia had opened the doors to Jewish students in the 1950s. A lot of smart Jewish students from Bronx Science, from Stuyvesant, and places like that. But as smart as they were, they were largely uneducated. The students that I taught at Princeton were educated. They at least had the rudiments of a solid grounding in either Latin or Greek, possibly both. They were not accomplished classicists. But they knew something about intellectual discipline, which students at Columbia simply didn't know. They had to acquire at Columbia. I certainly did. And Stanford was something else. It was, when I was there, it was a glorious country club in where no one actually did anything resembling work except for the math department, people in the mathematics department. Now, that was a partial, a partial experience. And, and very shortly thereafter, Stanford achieved an apotheosis as the center of the technological culture that made Silicon Valley. That was its destiny. Princeton's destiny and Columbia, Columbia's destiny were to become hyper-woke institutions. And there was something in the institutional structure of all these universities that made their destinies possible. What it was is, is much more difficult to say. Their, their sad destiny, you mean? Their sad destiny, yeah. I'm not I'm not extolling their destinies. They're obviously rotten places right now, as almost all universities are simply rotten, deep down rotten. Yeah, producing kids who go out and chant uh, from the river to the sea. There's something no profoundly argument. rotten. But but don't forget, in the fashion of, of elderly parents everywhere, I've been saying this. Let me see. I, I, I push the bounds of my uh, sagacity by 10 years every time I speak about it. I would say I've been saying this since the 1980s. You sure have. Remember old hose? Yeah. I mean, it, it was perfectly obvious. We should explain what old that hose. is. It's San Jose State University, yep. where I taught in the 1980s. It was perfectly obvious at the time something was going wrong. There was some ideological deformation. I think the best way to think about it is probably the, the most global way. Look, the university in the West, and in China too, there's no, no question about that, has always had a quasi-religious aspect to it. And as Norman Cantor, the medieval historian, was very fond of remarking, the religious impulse has always led either to a withdrawal from the world or an attempt to conquer it. I think that was a very shrewd remark. Either the monastery or the revolutionary, those are the two faces of universal relig religious experience throughout, throughout the world. But the university was a monastic institution. It was intended to allow a select group of scholars to withdraw from the world. It gave them tenure. It gave them protection. didn't pay them much money. But in exchange for that withdrawal from the world, they could do pretty much what they wanted in terms of their scholarly inquiries. And it wasn't a bad bargain. 
That collapsed with the advent of mass education, roughly in the 50s in the United States. And for a, for a while, for at least 10 years, it was a glorious education. University of California was a magnificent democratic institution. I, I got a fabulous education at the University of Washington in the early 80s. Do you remember how good it was? It was wonderful. For $300 that, a quarter? Yeah, I think the University of California, if I'm not badly mistaken, it was virtually free to California state residents, maybe $200 or something like that. That that democratic impulse was was quite noble. It was quite distinguished, quite enviable. But it had an inevitable effect. It, it corrupted the level of the student body itself. It lowered standards everywhere. And it made it first possible and then necessary to import a huge administrative staff <clears throat> to handle a largely expanded university. It coincided, that expansion of the administrative staff, it coincided with the feminist movement, which began in the, in the late 1960s. As any number of women discovered that the revolutionary ardor of the 1960s was simply a cover for an obvious racket with respect to women. They were being used, exploited, and uh, maltreated. That, that was the prevailing feminist wisdom. I don't think it was far wrong. I think the 60s were deeply regressive in many respects. But enormous, an enormous cohort had to go somewhere. And some part of that cohort of disgruntled women went into the university system. They became administrators because they had never been trained in any of the disciplines. It was an obvious, <clears throat> obvious tactic. Nobody deliberately designed it that way. It's just that the system itself made it possible <clears throat> for a great many women to uh, accept administrative roles who would otherwise have been frozen out of the university for a generation or two generations as their daughters acquired the scholarly skills necessary to take over the various departments. And they played a very sinister role. Anytime you expand the administrative apparatus of an institution such as the university, which is predicated on a very narrow concept of itself, you run a tremendous risk that the administrators are going to take over. And that's just what they did. That's just what they did. That, at any rate, is my analysis of, of the origins of woke in the universities, that the administrators, DEI administrators, played a very sinister role, still playing that role, although it, now it's become a parody. It's also coming from the academics, though. It's, it's overwhelmingly coming out of the academics, actually. The administrators are just adopting the language that's coming out of the academics. <clears throat> Had the universities stayed the same size as they were in the 1950s, and had the university professors been paid at the same rate they were paid in the 1950s, the universities would never have achieved the cultural power that they really did achieve. It was the, it was the amplification of disgruntled or aberrant voices within the university made possible by the enlargement of the university <coughs> that finally made it possible but this amplification to sweep over the entire world. So I, I don't, I don't think we're, we're disagreeing. And I think the more sophisticated analysis would be partly Marxian, partly Freudian, and partly intellectual. All these things played a role together. More about what you think the Freudian aspect is. I think that's an unexplored, look, unexplored look, way of look, looking at it. I was born in 1942. So I was not a baby boomer. I was three years before that generation began. 
And at, at certainly at Princeton, certainly at Stanford, I was in a position enviously to look at what was being done without being in any way able to participate in it. And the extent of my anti-war participation, I, want, I once went to an anti-draft rally at Oakland. That was it. It was crystal clear that you had two factors coming together that historically are quite anomalous. One, a huge expansion in population, which yeah. manifested itself as the baby boom. I, I, I don't have the, the figures at my fingertips, but the, the number of young people floating around the 1960s must have been twice as large as the number of people floating around the late 1940s or early 1950s, my generation, for example. The other factor, again, unanticipated, was the advent of what J.K. Galbraith called the affluent society. For the first time, I think, in, in human history, a general sense of affluence pervaded almost everywhere in American society. Of course, there were pockets of poverty. I'm not discounting that. <clears throat> but essentially, the young people who were out in the streets of San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, wherever, were not gnawed at by an aching sense of financial insecurity. They had the wherewithal, they had the means to continue living a very prolonged adolescence, which is exactly what they did. Adolescence lasting well beyond the traditional margins of 19, uh, 13 to 19, <coughs> extending into their 20s and even their early 30s. A lot of people I knew Go on. still part of the 60s when they were 30 and 35. Very old to be part of that kind of enthusiastic revolutionary movement. You had those two circumstances coming together. And of course, you're dealing with a cohort whose most distinguishing characteristic is their sexual avidity. What do you expect from young men aged, oh, say 13 to 25? The, the most pressing, the most pressing whip. Or, or the most flailing of whips is the whip of sexual urgency, which one generation before would have been channeled into early marriage and domesticity. Or war. Or war. But an affluent society made those all supererogatory. It wasn't necessary anymore to do it. People, age of 19, 20, considering the number of gullible and foolish young women simply offering themselves on the altar of social change, said, you know, I don't have to get married. I don't have to be disciplined. I don't have to go to work. I don't have to raise children. I'm just going to have a good time all the time. It was very palpable in the 1960s, that sense of have a good time all the time. And that's part of the explanation, of course, for the explosion of interest in drugs, which began in the 1960s as well. <clears throat> the women were the inevitable victims of the 1960s counterculture, inevitable victims. And they gradually discovered, you know, this isn't exactly a great deal for a young woman of 18 to be handed around from one revolutionary to another. But that aspect of the 1960s had a correlative effect on the people who were ostensibly supposed to be observing them and to be moderating their behavior, namely the people in every position of authority who 10 years before were imposing restrictions on dormitory life at Barnard and Columbia such that you could not bring women to your room at all. And you have to be checked back if you were a woman into your dorm room at 10 o'clock at night threw up their hands, in part out of an envious desire to join 
this hedonistic frenzy and in part of in part out of a deep fear that they would be unable to derive any moral authority from whatever they had been doing as administrators such that that moral authority would allow them to impose their will on what was happening in, under their nose. There's a very complicated sexual dynamic going on in the 1960s. Throughout the 1960s, certainly throughout the 1970s, it began to change in the 1980s, <clears throat> where every historical constraint on adolescent or late adolescent behavior was simply given up. The reins were thrown into the air, the horse just galloped any way he felt like galloping, and the result was social catastrophe. There were a few books that in part, and only in part, touched on these. Norman O'Brown wrote a very, very interesting book. Norman O'Brown was a classicist, a very good classicist, and he wrote a book called, what was it called, Love Against Death, or Life Against Death, and another book called Love's Body, where he looked at all this, understood it from a Freudian perspective, which to my mind remains the only perspective that makes any sense, and recommended what he called polymorphous perversity, that is, indulging every conceivable sexual desire, all at the same time if possible. And he was astonished as anyone that someone took his advice, anyone took his advice, they did take his advice, and the result was a shambling catastrophe of crude, uh, crude sexual behavior, unfulfilled desires, incoherent longings, aspirations that could not on this world ever be fulfilled, refusal to accept discipline, and above all, a contempt for any traditional form of authority. And it had a devastating, devastating effect on American life. I, mean, I was there. That, that was the judgment I was prepared to make. I think as early as, you were right, as early as the 1980s, when I began teaching in the California system. It, it, don't, don't forget, when I was teaching the California system, I was seeing the first wave of Im immigrants from Southeast Asia, and they were very good students, very responsible. It was the faculty. It was yeah. the administrators. Yeah. And they were, they were catastrophic, just catastrophic. And I discovered to my, to my astonishment, I won't say horror because I never had a, a very a grand view of, of academia in the first place, but to my astonishment that they were empty. They had no principles they were prepared to impose, neither intellectual, nor moral, nor social, nor ethical, certainly not artistic. They just went along with whatever seemed convenient at the time. And what seemed convenient at the time became progressively more oppressive until it metamorphosed, and the metamorphosis took it into what we now consider woke culture. You began by saying <laughs> no one would miss it if the universities were to disappear today, but it's been a true catastrophe because the universities are the elite production factory, and the people coming out of these places are, are intellectually corrupt. Or they're not even intellectually anything. They're not educated and morally corrupt. And it's yeah, yeah, to a certain extent. But look, elite production factor, I mean, that, that sounds like that is a mouthful. The universities are still putting out very good people in STEM, science and technology. Sure. Mm -hmm. It is worth noting, however, that the leaders in artificial intelligence, by and large, the real, the real top people like... <clears throat> Anatoly Karpathy or Sutskever or Hinton, for that matter, are coming from outside the United States academic establishment. They're very, very notable coming from the collapse of uh, the Russian academic establishment in the, in the 1980s and 1990s. Something I, I look 
for for decisive analysis of that, but I, I don't see much that there has been a wave of absolutely brilliant people coming out of the defunct Soviet Union and uh, going into positions of leadership in mathematics and now increasingly in artificial intelligence. Well, what I was what is what I was trying to get at is it still remains the case that the commanding heights of our economy are dominated by people who graduated from these universities. The Ivies and university the Ivies, Stanford, even even the good state universities, and the entire culture reflects their the intellectual fads that have gripped the places. Yeah, it, to a certain extent. I mean, the reflection is not accurate. I mean. <clears throat> Marx famously talked about history, the first time tragedy, the second time farce. Doctrines that emerge in, in the university appear as quasi-serious and immediately become exploded into farce. I mean, what, what we see taking place now are derivatives of derivatives of derivatives of doctrines that are traceable back to any number of dim, dweebish people like Judith Butler or any, any of the feminist authorities on, on these matters. For example, the doctrine of trance. Men can, can become women, women can become men. That has antecedents, of course, in the university. It does have some antecedents in the university. But by the time it reaches Disney, for example, or by the time it reaches the Florida educational system, or by the time it reaches Bud Light, it's kind of a grotesque, prancing parody of itself. So it, it, it's not only <clears throat> a prancing parody of itself, but deep down, everyone understands it to be a parody. When what, what, what was that grotesque advertisement for Bud Light, Dylan Mulvaney? I, I'm not sure I have the Dylan name. Mulvaney, I believe, yeah. Um, you know, some man who likes wearing women's dresses and pretends she's going through girlhood. And, and of course, Bud Light. Consumers were perfectly happy to to shatter the company, drive its share price all the way down by refusing to drink the stuff, which is entirely understandable considering their their cohort, their place in the American economic environment. But the point is, by that time, there was no doctrine involved. Everybody understood perfect, perfectly well, even though they were not quite willing to articulate their understanding. That this was a man prancing around in a, in a woman's dress, an absurd figure, probably psychologically damaged in one way or another. If not damaged, then totally nuts. And that the the corporation, the beer corporation, was simply trying to cash in the the way many corporations try to cash in on the latest fad in any capitalist environment. But but nobody was urged to take it seriously. The way to take it, the way to understand it, was a deep, ironical acceptance of parody on display. And that in itself, it's got a kind of Weimar era, Weimar Germany era feel to it. The dismissal of any ostensible content in favor of its latent content and the treatment of ostensible content, ironically, that's a very characteristic gesture of a, of a society in, in decay. Yeah, <laughs> it is. <clears throat> How do you explain the decline in even basic intellectual standards? How do you explain public figures who can't who can't make a speech, who can't complete coherent sentence? I mean, if you look at the difference between, say, Eisenhower's farewell speech or or any Kennedy speech, or even Nixon, and anything coming out of any major political figure now, it's 
a regression that's so visible and it happens so quickly. What could explain that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think a part of it is that it's it, part of it reinforces the old lesson. You give up a certain part of a cultural tradition, and sooner or later you pay the price. The cultural tradition is the tradition of training and rhetoric, which is not not limited to the classical era until oh maybe 1945, 1950, it was part of the education of almost anyone going to an elite school to learn to stand up and deliver a talk. Even I had some exposure to that, both in elementary school and at Bronx Science. People took elocution lessons. People took elocution lessons. There was a standard diction that was worth emulating. There was a standard diction that was not there, there was um, a diction or a variety of speech that was not worth education, not worth emulating. You did not want to appear uneducated. That restriction, that prohibition, that restraint has collapsed completely. It doesn't matter whether you appear uneducated. It happened in the United, United Kingdom as well as the United States. Did it disappear uh, in an outburst of egalitarian sentiment? Was the idea that if if we draw distinctions between educated speech and uneducated speech, it imposes an elitism on, on society? Well, everybody knew that from the beginning. It was an elite elite undertaking to, to, to form a standard of speech that marked you as having a certain level of education. It's certainly true in France as well, although our ears are not as attuned to French accents as they are to English accents. It's absolutely clear to anyone who pays attention that at a certain for a certain period of time in French history, to speak French in a certain way was considered absolutely minimal, indis indispensable element for political life. If you couldn't speak French in that way, you were marginalized. That's disappeared. You listen to French broadcasters, there's any number of different accents, a very heavy Parisian accent, a very heavy elite Parisian accent from the 7th arrondissement, an accent from the south of France, a Canadian accent. They're all equally welcome, equally accepted, but not equally satisfying. Absolutely the same thing is true. Go through a series of BBC broadcasts and you can see exactly the moment, not the day, not the hour, but the second where BBC, the BBC Corporation, gave up its standards on public uh, public speech. There used to be an extraordinarily, extraordinarily refined BBC acts. It's gone. Going back to the, uh, the question, why did this happen? I wonder if it's not a function of what you described previously, which is the baby boom and the advent of the affluent society. Once you had this large, confident middle class, <clears throat> it was in a position to demand that they not be judged by the way they spoke. Claire, I'm sorry, I missed one word. Once you had this large, confident middle class, middle middle yeah, class, middle class. Um, it's, it's, it's yeah, I'm thinking it's a claim. That, as far as I know, has not really been made before in history, a large affluent group with a great deal of political power, certainly a great deal of authority in the culture, like the 60s generation, to whom everyone paid attention, simultaneously declaring, it is within our power to judge others, but we prefer not to be judged ourselves. Yeah. Could be the 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 slogan of the nineteen sixties. Judge others as we as, as we feel like judging them, but insist that others not judge us. I think it's 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 a true historical anomaly. I think you put your finger on something. The refusal to be judged 
on the grounds that to be judged would be in some way to be degraded, deride, dismissed, or or uh, in other way, other ways dismissed. Certainly, that was part of it. A man who says to you, I don't want to be judged, or a woman who says to be, I refuse to be judged, has something they're hiding. They're guilty of something that, if judged, would corrupt their sense of themselves. That's certainly true. I mean, Dr. Johnson knew it perfectly. <clears throat> and it, it can come out in, in many, many different ways. You know, that wonderful remark about Dr. Johnson, he included self-criticism. I mean, the people of the 1960s, the generation of the 1960s, were full of self-criticism. But as Dr. Johnson observed, you can count on it, sir, he said to Boswell, a man who is critical of himself is doing so because it's an oblique form of self-gratification. It shows he has something to spare. And I think that's true. I mean, the absence of a willingness to be judged is possible only in a, in a radically individualistic society in which no authority is recognized beyond the individual's own set of, of, of desires. It's not <laughs> far from there to my truth. I beg your pardon? Not far from there to my truth. Yeah, I mean, it, it's worth asking, what on earth does somebody mean when they talk about my truth? They don't mean something along the lines, it's my truth that I, I have two arms. That's not what they're getting at. <clears throat> what they really mean is... I feel. Well... It's not even feeling, it's it's more a, a kind of casual recklessness about what they want. What I want is what I want, and what I want is good because I want it, which is certainly, certainly a proclamation that has always resonated with me. I'm not criticizing it. I'm saying that's, that's what we seem to have in front of us. But a person so committed is instinctively chary of judgment, instinctively chary. I think we see that all, all over the place. But but epistemologically, my truth has no meaning whatsoever. What does it mean to say my truth? I mean, all truth is relative to someone's position, some some of these economic circumstances, but that's no, no standard of judgment. It's a certain movement in philosophy to the idea of moral relativism, but it, it doesn't no one could no one who says that could explain where they got the idea. They're just parroting something they've heard. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that no matter how dopey the idea or empty or, or garrulous the speaker, there is a, a fine thread always discernible going back to academic doctrine or philosophical doctrine or even logical doctrine. And many times the original doctrine is far more powerful than anything that has come from it. I think that's true in terms of moral relativity it's it's very true in terms of of any analysis of truth it is just a fact that for a hundred years or more we've been lummoxed any time we try to present defend articulate a correspondence theory of truth and if we don't have a correspondence theory of truth that is to say snow is white because there's something out there that makes snow white we're left with a disquotational theory of truth of the form snow is white is true if and only if snow is white. But then the question arises, is this not a form of epistemological relativism? And the answer is, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. We've given up on the idea of external world, a real external world that acts as a compressor on our beliefs, our attitudes, and our propositions a compressor that winnows the wheat from the chaff. We've given up on that idea in philosophy. What we can say is pretty much limited to what we can say, what we can affirm within the boundaries uh, of, uh, of a view of 
the world and theories of the world in which what is primary are the theories. What, what is primary are declarations, are propositions. They're true or false, but they're not true or false in virtue of something palpable. We can't find that palpable something. We haven't been able to find it since Kant. We simply can't find that in the external world. It's not there, or at least it's not there in a way we can make coherent to ourselves. And that is what persuaded Richard Rorty, whom I knew at Princeton. I liked him. I admired him. He was a very clever guy. And he just gave up philosophy. He said, the only thing left is literature. The only thing left is social analysis. And in the end, the only thing left is what we are prepared to affirm. And we cannot justify completely what we are prepared to affirm. The man who thinks Nazi Germany was just a swell social experiment and the man who denies it was a swell social experiment have about the same epistemological standing, which is none whatsoever. He wasn't happy with that result. We talked about it a lot. In fact, during the 1960s, I presented even more aggressive arguments in, in, in favor of that thesis. And he wasn't happy with my arguments. It fairly reckoned I part of Wittgenstein, neither here nor there right now. But that's exactly what persuaded a basically honest guy like Richard Rorty to leave philosophy. And between Richard Rorty and some sophomore who gets up and says, well, it's my truth. There isn't even the width of cigarette paper between them. And that's just the way it is. There, there are some very powerful parts of academic philosophy and of logic in favor or can be construed as if they were in favor of the dopiest things one hears today. And that's part of the problem. I don't think that these college students running around saying the dopiest things we've ever heard. No, I agree. By Wittgenstein. I no, don't know. So I think or, Tarsky, or Richard Rorty, they haven't heard of any of these people. Nobody knows about Tarski's definition of truth. I agree with you. It's a monumental 1931 paper. And some sophomore standing up and saying, well, that's my truth, has no acquaintance with that. But I think one of the unsuspected aspects of our current situation is we've been returned, forcibly returned to a kind of idealism in, in intellectual life where ideas seem to have a causal agency all their own. It's not an historical form of causation. It's not that Tarski spoke to X, who spoke to Y, who finally spoke to the sophomore. It's just something in the, uh, call it virtual space, virtual intellectual space in which ideas, very powerful, very serious, mathematically quite rigorous ideas uttered in 1931, somehow or other have a causal effect on propositions uttered in a lecture, lecture room in Mongahela State College in 2023. What kind of connection that is? It's super hard to say, but it's there. I'm sure it's there. The mass democratization of education and the large, youthful middle class that emerged are much are much more useful as ideas, as, as theories of what happened to our intellectual life. But it took on sort of a ratchet effect. It did. It did. Very much so. And with, with almost no one pushing back against it or the only people pushing back against it, as we've discussed before, a class of conservatives who have absolutely nothing to offer intellectually, who don't even know what they're talking about and trying to protect. Yeah, well, you know, that kind of includes me, Clara. I've been grumbling about this for 40 years now, and I don't have, I don't have anything to offer either. Oh, uh, that's not true. But, no, it is true. It's true in the larger sense that there is no one in contemporary culture, certainly no one I can point to. Maybe there's a figure that I don't know. Who has the authority to say this or that 
is what needs to be done. There, there are a lot of critics of contemporary culture. There are a lot of diagnoses, most of them incompatible with contemporary culture. There are a lot of minatory voices in contemporary culture, and there are a lot of depressive voices in contemporary culture. But if you look at the at the intellectual history of the 20th century, in almost every part of the 10, 20th century, you could point to certain commanding figures. For example, Weber in sociology, Freud in psychoanalysis, T.S. Eliot in criticism, figures like Einstein and uh, Fermi and the great founders of quantum mechanics, Heisenberg and Schrodinger in, in physics, mathematics, Hilbert, logic, Gödel, Tarski. It's very tough to look around and find comparable figures right now, neither political, nor intellectual, nor moral, nor scientific. How is it that we haven't had a great physicist in a long time? Somebody with a, with a blazing unity of intuition to show us the way forward. I mean, the last great, great achievement in theoretical physics was the standard model completed in the early 1970s. And after that, lots of of magnificent achievements, but no unifying vision of where physics is to go. Instead, we have monstrosities such as the multiverse or uh, 26-dimensional spaces in which no one really believes. True that we're not producing anything new or interesting, though. Look what they've done with ChatGPT. I didn't say that's across the board. I say no, no commanding individuals anymore. ChatGPT is very much a collaborative effort. And, and it is too new to have anything other than the most desultory opinion about ChatGPT. And I've used it, you've used it, I found it absolutely astonishing. And I'm convinced it has important ramifications. For the first time in human history, we've built a machine that can use a natural language, converges on a natural language. And very quickly, I understand the time to acquire a new natural language for ChatGPT is something like 15 minutes, yeah. which when you think about it is absolutely astonishing. The ChatGPT 4 picked up Persian in 15 minutes. And this is a major accomplishment. It's an astonishing achievement. It's astonishing. It is an astonishing achievement. And I certainly wouldn't dare speculate about whether it's it's going to be an achievement for good or for bad. Is it an existential risk? I, I've listened to all the arguments. I'm not quite sure what to think. I'd have to think about it much more diligently. And deep down, I don't want to, because I have other things I enjoy thinking about. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. True of a lot of things. But ChatGPT represents the, the triumph of a new way of thinking about science, does it not? Instead of, of looking to the great argonauts of the Western tradition, Galileo, Newton, Einstein, I guess, Maxwell, Einstein, Schrodinger, Heisenberg, even Oppenheimer, Fermi, solitary figures, blasting their way by sheer intellectual power into a new understanding. We've got corporate teams working on these things, and they seem to be doing astonishing things, but that's not quite science as we know it. It's not quite science as we know it socially, but it also intellectually represents something very different, the triumph of data over theory. That's a very significant observation. Very, very important in the future. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, a group of meteorologists got together and compared predictions based on statistical inferences of the sort ChatGPT does when predicting the next token in a, in a sentence with predictions based on theories. 
And predictions based on a statistical model, you look out the window, you see what the weather is doing, you do that for 10,000, 10 million times. You see whether you can sniff out any statistical regularity. If you can, you make a prediction. It turns out the statistical predictions were much more accurate, much more accurate than the theoretical predictions. You know, the theoretical predictions using Navier-Stokes equations, you try to simulate the equations, you try to figure out what a turbulent flow is going to do in a week. Much better just to look at the, the data. That's, that's also true in, in language acquisition. Astonishingly enough, it's almost the triumph of, of Skinnerian theory 60 years after Skinner was, was presumed dead. I, I don't know what to make of it. I just don't know what to make of it. It involves much, much more attention and, and dedicated or disciplined inquiry than it's been possible to devote to these subjects. But it's some, a revolution. It's a revolution. Something has been fundamentally changing, not only socially in terms of the enormous power these corporations are now, now wielding. The great corporations, the technological corporations, are clearly displacing government in many, many areas. And it's worldwide, not regional, not American, not tied to any ethno-state either. They're, they're real global entities. And What's they're, amazing they're, about this is the government isn't trying to claw its power back. Doesn't have it. Doesn't have it in them. You would think that they would be fighting for it, though. If they understood what they were fighting, but you know, the government has declined along with everyone, declined intellectually. It just doesn't have the intellectual resources to take on open AI. We saw that just a month ago. It doesn't uh, even have the resources to take on Elon Musk. No, open AI versus the government. Open AI is free and unconstrained as a bird, as a bird in flight. No meaningful restrictions are going to be imposed on that technology. And because there is nobody in Congress, nobody in the political class with the sophistication to go look at what these people are doing and understand the technical reports, there's <clears throat> not going to be any. It's just going to be released into the wild, each version more powerful than the next. You would think, though, that the U.S. government would have an instinct to protect its own power, to have even... No, no, you'd be wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't. The declining intellectual quality of our representatives in government has terrible consequences. It has terrible consequences. Well, you, you see a declining human intellectual capital and augmenting, increasing artificial intel intellectual capital. I mean, everybody who's used ChatGPT4 says, man, my goodness, these things are, are remarkable. Maybe there's something inside. I don't know. It's possible. First time in human history, anybody's looked at a machine and said, I think there's something inside. You can bet that your grandfather never said that about his car, even though it was a very sophisticated car. It was a Fraser, very good car. What do you think he would have said on speaking to ChatGPT? <clears throat> I think that's asking him to leap over too many intellectual hurdles that he did not live to experience. I mean, it's like taking... Uh, what, you, you can consider the reverse question. If, if, you, if you went back to the 13th century and asked a 13th century monk, what do you think of quantum confinement? He wouldn't know what you're talking about. I, I, I think my father would have had a lot of trouble simply understanding what's going on. That's the first reaction, by the way, of people who are technically un, unsophisticated. They don't understand what you're telling them. They'll say, well, it's just like a typewriter or a linguist at the University of Washington. It's just a stochastic, stochastic parrot. parrot. Yeah, She's absurd. She doesn't understand what she's seeing. What you're seeing is something never before seen in the history of the human race, perhaps never before seen in the history of the universe, period an artificial device that's plainly intelligent, that plainly can do lots of things that human beings 
presumptively thought that they alone could do. Not true. A machine, we can build a machine that can do it. Is it on control? Obviously not. We don't understand what's going on. Can it get smarter and smarter? Well, we don't know, but maybe. Is it going to be an existential risk? Well, you can certainly see a scenario toward existential catastrophe. It's very easy to see. Eliezer Yudkovsky sees it all the time. So does Connor Leahy. And so do many other people, including the original. Something spooky just happened at OpenAI. That's clear. Something spooky seems to have happened. Jeffrey Hinton, the same thing. Jeffrey Hinton has a wonderful remark. Uh, He says, you know, a grizzly bear probably has an IQ of 60, which is probably what a dog does too, by the way. And he said, do we want to encourage a grizzly bear to emerge in society with an IQ of 240? Good question. Good question. I don't have an answer. Hmm? It's a good way of putting it. It's a very good way of putting it. But but the technology itself is going to demand, this I feel reasonably confident in saying, a, a complete reappraisal of intellectual work of the last 60 years, because it really does seem that data has displaced theory in a way that was completely unexpected. Maybe there is no such thing as theoretical physics. Maybe there's no such thing as theoretical linguistics. Maybe there are only ever-shifting statistical irregularities in the pattern of data. This Maybe an earthquake in linguistics. I beg your pardon? It must be an earthquake in linguistics. <laughs> Tough to know. It's a, you know The people in linguistics who are very influenced by, say, generative grammar, minimalism, things like that, are very entrenched. They have a lot to defend. Yeah. <clears throat> I was very disappointed in Chomsky's remarks. I thought they were uh, inappropriate because intellect- intellectually indefensible. He said, well, look, ChatGP doesn't really tell us anything about how human beings learn a language or acquire a language, or use a language. After all, it could learn any kind of impossible language. I thought those were ridiculous, modestly infuriating remarks, because the one, the one analogy I could point to is the reaction to the Wright brothers when they developed man flight. Very, very smart people, Joseph Conrad among them, the novelist Joseph Conrad says, yeah, well, you can get a machine into the air. It doesn't tell us anything about bird flight. And they were right. It doesn't tell you a whole lot about bird flight. After all, it's only a hundred years later that anyone was able to simulate bird flight under realistic conditions. We can do that now. It's very, very much harder than man flight. What birds can do is amazing compared to what we can do. But what we can do, no bird can do. No bird can fly from New York to, to Paris in six hours. That's just out of the question. And <clears throat> no bird can transport 340 other birds on a plane. What we seem to be seeing in the development of artificial intelligence is a general theory of of intelligence, something that encompasses human and machine learning at the same time. And that's going to, that's going to change a lot of perspectives in the sciences. It's real tough right now. If you're thinking, how would I advise some super smart kid, very interested in mathematics, very interested in the sciences about where to go? It seems to me the obvious piece of advice is, Get into artificial intelligence. It's where the hot people are going, and it's where the payoff is the biggest. It's the newest of fields. You're still in virgin territory. One of my readers very sweetly said that he had decided to go into artificial intelligence after reading the articles we published on the Cosmopolitan Globalist about it. So I think that's exactly how people are thinking. And it's exactly I'm, I'm sure of it. I, I certainly think if, if you look at... <laughs> Look at mathematics, physics, and artificial intelligence. There's a, an obvious strip. The very brightest, most intellectually powerful people are going into AI. It's the most and interesting field right now. Time, 
the time needed to get to the top of the AI, get to the top of it intellectually, is way shorter than the time needed to get to the top of physics. You know, you want to you want to really be a competent physics. Eh, that's a big slog. You got to do physics as an undergraduate. You got to go through graduate school. You got to do the fellowship. Takes a long time to be to be a polished, sophisticated physicist. Much shorter time to be a polished guy in AI. Another field that's new and revolutionary. What we're able to do with gene editing now, and the advances we're making in biomedical sciences, are really revolutionary. I guess so. I have to admit that I haven't been following it as closely as you have. So I'm, I really don't know that I have my usual penetrating remark, remarks to make about gene editing. It seems to me they're doing it. I know that. And they're achieving some impressive results. I know that too. I don't have much faith in longevity research. The idea of <laughs> eugenics is going to come back in a big way. The idea of eugenics? Yeah. How can it not? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen a whole lot. I know there's some crazy people in Silicon Valley who are interested in improving the gene pool. Only mate with that sort of thing tends to to disappear, or or it appears in the world as some sort of morbidly anomalous set of policies, like Nazi Germany racial policies. But I think we're still pretty well inoculated against eugenics. It does not have a great reputation right now. Oh. Maybe that so will change. I don't know. When, when it becomes widely available, of course. <laughs> oh, to select your offspring. Sure. Yeah, exactly. I see. And improve your offspring. Maybe. I don't know. I, you know, I'm very reluctant to offer an authoritative opinion if I, if I haven't really paid much attention to it. I haven't paid much attention either to gene editing. I couldn't explain gene editing. I couldn't explain CRISPR right now. These are subjects I just haven't, uh, well, frankly, I haven't found them very interesting. I find AI fascinating, but I haven't found those subjects very interesting. But I, I recognize your point. Huge changes are coming. The scope of biomedical intervention is going to be augmented immeasurably. No question about that. And all the traditional moral frameworks to appraise this have collapsed. You've seen Canada decided, well, we're going to the, the prohibition, the taboo against euthanasia. Let's get rid of it. Let's see what happens. Yeah, that's one reason I ain't setting foot in Canada. <laughs> I know what those guys are thinking the minute I present my passport and they say 1942. Yeah, that makes, yeah, I know how old I am, fella. It's amazing how correct the slippery slope people were. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were absolutely right. I mean, I don't know much about Canada because it's it's like entering a baked potato as far as I'm concerned. But Holland is the same thing. I mean, they got teams going around Holland willing to euthanize five-year-olds. All they have to do is say it on their birthday. I wish you would euthanize me. Bang, there's a team right there. Well, I think we should um, wrap it up because we've been talking for an hour. And I think... You're just getting warmed up. Yeah. <laughs> well... I got lots of other wise things to say. We want to keep them. We want to keep them eager for the next episode, right? Yeah, why, yeah. why don't you tease the next episode? Tell them what you're going to tell them in the next one. I I, I want to announce my debut on uh, what's it called? OnlyFans. <laughs> yeah, for the for the right kind of money, you get a view of me in the shower. <laughs> don't miss the opportunity. All right, OnlyFans, it is. Okay, bye bye. Well, that's it. We're not going to. Oh, I thought you said get off. Well, I thought, you know, maybe a couple of closing remarks, some some bon mots, some give people some idea of what to expect next. You mean next, the next podcast? Next episode, yeah. 
Next episode, I think we should talk, I'm talking seriously now, I think the subject of AI, artificial intelligence, Chinese room experiments, John Searle, what ChatGPT5 is going to be able to do, what this really teaches us about language, about human cognition, is rich enough to merit an hour. Okay. Really do. Okay, let's talk about that. Either that that or I can denounce transgender ideology for an hour. Your choice. (laughs) Ask your viewers what they want. Okay, we'll we'll take a poll. We'll take a poll. It's one or the other. All right. (laughs) Thanks, Pop. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.